0: I had never heard of the city of St. Jude until just a few weeks ago when I was on this trip. The city of St. Jude is a Catholic institution. It has a big uh, footprint for its campus, and it's just a couple of miles, a mile or two outside of Birmingham, Alabama. The city of St. Jude, this big campus with its fields, was the final camping site for the Selma to Montgomery march 50 years ago, before they entered into Montgomery, it's estimated that 25,000 people kind of joined them there for this last short leg of the march. So I was there at the city of St. Jude just St. just a few weeks ago with about 500 other Unitarian Universalists on our way to Selma. We were kind of doing the trip um, backwards. We'd, we'd had some of the workshops at the conference center and now we were on our way to do the bridge reenactment. We were gathered in this big gymnasium kind of cafeteria space where we had had lunch. And as the lunch sort of came to an end, we started a worship service. There was singing and clapping and some storytelling of talking about some of the civil rights martyrs and the civil rights movement. We were in this worship service preparing our hearts and minds in many ways for the bridge-crossing reenactment that we were going to do just later that day. During the service, we remembered... Some of those who had died 50 years ago. We remember Jimmy Lee Jackson, who I mentioned earlier, and the Reverend James Reeb, who I mentioned earlier, and Viola Liuzzo, this 39 year old Unitarian Universalist mother of five who responded to Dr. King's call, drove down from Detroit, and came to be a part of the, the march. We remember these men and women who showed up not because they wanted to be in the spotlight, but because they yearned for freedom. And we're willing to stand with others, with their brothers and sisters in that march, in that work for freedom. We ended this worship service in this gymnasium, we ended this worship by singing together, We Shall Overcome. And I have to be honest with you. I am usually somewhat resistant to this song and sometimes even indifferent to this song. And I think it's, it's probably a generational thing in part, but it's more than that for me as well. When I do sing it, I don't really sing it. I kind of mumble it and sing a little bit. I don't really let it out. I don't open my heart. I don't let the words land in me. And that's because there is this cynical part of me that is thinking, we shall overcome? Really? I mean, I'm an optimistic person, and universalism, this idea that at the end of the day, every single person beyond, I don't know how it happens, is sort of redeemed in love, in the love at the heart of things, Uh, I, I stand on that ground. So I'm an optimistic person, and I believe in the power of spirit of love to grab us and commission us and put a moral vision in front of us and for our lives to be spent in that purpose of building justice in this world. And at the same time, when I think about the song, We Shall Overcome, I, I imagined sitting in the pew at Brown Chapel and hearing Dr. King's words when he said, essentially, what killed James Reeb is the racism and white supremacy of this country. What killed James Reeb is the silence of too many churches. And so, in that space, as I thought about the racism and white supremacy that is still very much alive 50 years after the march, I also was thinking, We shall overcome? I don't know. But something happened in that space as the band, not even a band, they were just singing, they were just singing, We shall overcome. Something opened in me, and I stopped resisting the damn song. <laughs> I did. I just I surrendered to it. As we kept singing, we joined hands with one another, gay and straight, old and young, male and female, transgender, black and white and brown, able-bodied. We joined hands with one another. And as we held hands, I thought about the faithful work that we're doing in this church, that we've been doing here to really understand race, this idea that race is a social construct, To understand racism, that that is the way the social construct is operationalized and targets and impacts and oppresses people. To understand whiteness, how whiteness is still seen as superior and better and the norm in so many ways. I thought about the work we're doing, my own journey, our journey of becoming more aware of these racial stories out there. The way that racial stories work in our community and policing in the school system, and how this system was created by human beings and can surely, surely be undone by human beings. So, holding hands and singing, I felt the Spirit whispering to me all things are possible. And in that moment, in this gymnasium at the city of St. Jude, holding hands and singing the story from C.T. Vivian also came into my mind, this reminder from him that love has to be at the center of any revival, of any revolution. Love has to be at the center. We have to love people, not just one or two, but everyone. And that kind of love takes discipline and courage. It takes Commitment. It takes understanding yourself and other human beings and recognizing that even if there's someone you hate or cannot stand, they too are human. They suffer like you suffer, and there's a way to bridge to that human being. You have to love your enemy, C.T. Vivian said, and believe in their redemption and your redemption by that love. And until you're ready to truly love everyone, he said, we're just playing. So that's all happening in this moment singing and holding hands. And maybe it was grace or maybe it was my body activating hope and healing as Pat talked about in her call to worship this will to wholeness. Whatever it was, as I looked into the eyes of those around me, some I knew and many I didn't, singing deep in my heart, I do believe I felt a tidal wave of love sweep through that space. That was the kind of love it was the kind of love that allows me and other white people to say black lives matter, and native lives matter, all lives matter, but especially to say black lives matter, not because it means that white lives don't matter, but because for the history of this country, as Jeremiah Wright has so eloquently reminded us, black bodies have mattered black slave bodies, black bodies as three-fifths of a person in the Constitution, black bodies as labor, as entertainment, as capital, as revenue for the prison industrial complex. Black bodies have always mattered. Black lives have not. So it was a love that set my heart open It was a love and a singing that arced me back through 50 years of history to the faith and the love that guided the feet of the marchers 50 years ago. A love that was a shield, a love that said to them in a world and a culture that did not, that said, you matter, you are needed, be not afraid, return to no person evil for evil. It was a love that was practiced and disciplined and grounded in nonviolence. It was a moral force, this love. That's what I had a sense of in that space. So I stopped resisting the song and I truly let it in. And I wept. And I held hands and we sang together and it felt Like someday, someday, we will overcome. In that singing, our hearts were made ready. And after that singing, we reboarded the buses and headed for Selma, clear that the bridge crossing reenactment was not a party or a celebration. It was a consecration. It was a holy recommissioning to the unfinished work of justice and of building beloved community. We parked in Selma, several blocks from the bridge, and I can't share all of the details with you today, but there are many, many, many that stick with me. One of them was just the condition of the houses around us, burned out and in disrepair. And I know the poverty and the segregation in Selma is worse if if not the same as it was 50 years ago. We parked, and the past and the present immediately began to blend together. And some of us learned that just the day before, this was the day when President Obama had done the bridge crossing reenactment, and when he had spoken, just the day before, someone, the Ku Klux Klan, had distributed flyers, about 4,000 flyers, around Selma with an anti-Dr. King and an anti-immigrant message. Was it 1965 or 2015? We walked to Brown Chapel, the place where that memorial service was held for James Reeb, and we slowly waited for the march to begin. There were thousands and thousands of people, different groups, all converging. And after a while, we began to slowly walk toward the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And the bridge, by the way, I know many of you know this, is named after a man who was a Confederate general, and a grand dragon of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan following the Civil War, which makes, in some ways, the efforts 50 years ago and the remembrance this year even more powerful to recognize the history and the ground we walk on has never been safe ground for people of color. Our group had merged with thousands of others, and the crowd was large and mostly black people, so we had arrived as one large group of about 500 of us we quickly broke up into smaller groups there was no way to stay together and i ended up with most of my people and by my people i mean folks from this church i was walking with ruth, reverend ruth mckenzie and lena gardner and emma paskowitz who's a member of our racial justice leadership team and her father dan who had responded 50 years ago and gone to selma so the five of us were walking together. There were other First Universalist folks there, but we weren't all together in that group. So it was this group of five that slowly moved arm in arm toward the bridge. And as we walk, walked, I felt the presence of our Minister Emeritus, the Reverend John Cummins, who had responded to King's call and been there 50 years ago. I felt your presence there as well. Your presence, you were with me because together we are on this journey of crossing bridges, of becoming a church committed to racial justice. And as we slowly crossed the bridge, the footsteps and the voices of the past came into the present. I could hear Dr. King's footsteps on the bridge and the footsteps of those who walked with him. And I marveled at his deep faith, his incredibly deep faith, The faith that he had in nonviolent, direct action, in radical, redemptive love, the faith in the power of that nonviolent, radical love, that faith that led the United States government and the FBI to call Dr. King the most dangerous man in America. The most dangerous man in America. They knew, as Cornel West writes in his book, the government knew... That Reverend King was a revolutionary Christian, sincere in his commitment and serious in his calling. They knew he was a product of a black prophetic tradition, full of fire in his bones and love in his heart and light in his mind and courage in his soul. He was a threat, Cornel West says, because he dared to organize and mobilize black rage over past and present crimes against humanity, targeting black folk and other oppressed people. And he organized in peaceful, nonviolent ways. And as we walked across the bridge thinking about these voices from the past, I kept thinking, and maybe you've seen this hashtag, Selma is now. Selma is right now. A year and a half ago when the Supreme Court gutted the 1965 Voting Rights Act, they gutted that voting act, and in the aftermath of that decision, many southern states have passed or implemented voter ID laws, or purged the voting rules, or changed the hours you can vote, or ended same-day registration, all of which makes it difficult for low-income voters and young people and minorities to vote. Selma is now. Selma is now, as this country continues to criminalize blackness and brownness, arresting and incarcerating people of color at disproportionate rates. Selma is now, as our schools, designed by white people for white people, fail our children of color. Selma is now. The work is now. As we walked across the bridge, I thought about those who had died. I thought about the blood of James Reeb, the one struck in the back of his head. I thought about the blood of Viola Liuzzo, shot on the highway, this young mother, shot on the highway driving from Selma to Montgomery to just give people rides as a part of the movement and the march, shot by the Ku Klux Klan. I thought of the blood of Dr. King and the blood that is still spilled today. The voices of the dead spoke to me painting a vision of our work our calling right now today i could hear dr king reminding us that rather than live with despair in the face of injustices our response must be revolution and radical love again from cornell west writing about the radical king a revolution in our priorities a reevaluation of our values, a reinvigoration of our public life, a fundamental transformation of our way of thinking that helps give power to everyday citizens and ordinary people. King understood radical love, and hear this King understood radical love as a form of death, a relentless self examination in which a fearful, hateful, ego self dies daily to be reborn in courageous, loving, sacrificial self. Radical love is putting aside, putting away the fearful, hateful, egotistical self and letting be born the courageous, loving, sacrificial self. So I imagine Nonviolent love at the center of any revival, any movement, any revolution. Nonviolent, radical love that can cross every bridge, every boundary, every difference. A love that can chase out fear. A love that can redeem every human heart. And a love that holds us whether we're marching or at wits' ends, not knowing what's next. So a a dangerous faith, and this is what King had because he was called the most dangerous man in America, a dangerous faith, our dangerous faith, we have these roots as well, is one that is grounded in radical love. And hear this. A dangerous faith grounded in that radical love calls us to justice work. It does. It calls us to justice work, to see the systems of oppression, to ask not just Who killed James Reeb or who killed Tamir Rice or who killed Eric Garner, but what killed James Reeb? What killed Tamir Rice or Eric Garner? And let me say this as well. We are not a dangerous faith simply by being activists and justice seekers. We are not a dangerous faith if that's all that we do. Nor are we a dangerous faith simply by growing our souls and tending to our self-care and development and maturation. We are a dangerous faith when we understand those two pieces, when we understand that personal healing and growth and development and freedom and justice, if those are to mean anything at all, they must be tied to the healing and liberation and growth of everyone. So, a dangerous faith helps us grow our souls to, to practice and be disciplined in the kind of nonviolent love that these civil rights activists were, helps us heal the world as well. It helps us hold both of those things, the personal and the social. A dangerous faith holds them and they dance and talk to one another. At the other end, of the Edmund Pettus Bridge as we came over the top of the bridge and started down this other side. There was no line of state troopers, no billy clubs or tear gas at the ready as there had been 50 years ago. There were people milling about, there were lots of buses getting people carried off to where they needed to be, there were vendors selling t-shirts and food, and it felt honestly a little Anticlimactic, it felt a little ordinary, it felt something of a letdown, I think. Except except that I didn't leave the bridge in Selma. The bridge is with me. The footsteps of John Cummins and Dr. King and the church members I walked with a few weeks ago, that is with me. Because Selma is now, and we have to train and discipline our hearts in this radical, redemptive love because there are bridges to cross. There is healing to be done, brothers and sisters to stand with right now. Selma is now, and the answers don't come easily or simply, but as I speak with you this morning, as I share what I experienced, I do believe that someday, someday, we will overcome. The bridge is in front of us. Selma is now. Amen.